Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Welcome to CNN Tonight. I'm Jake Tapper. Is Vladimir Putin a rational actor or has Vladimir Putin lost his mind? That's really the subtext of of all the conversations about whether the Russian president is actually willing to drive humanity to the brink of a nuclear disaster. I bet it's keeping President Biden up at night. How about you? How are you sleeping ever since President Biden used the word Armageddon? In just a moment, I'll ask President Biden outright how close he thinks we really are to the brink and what options are on the table in our exclusive interview. Because as Biden noted, In Ukraine, Putin's choices, his options are narrowing. We will defend our land by all means at our disposal. We will do everything to ensure the security of our people. So breaking out our Putin to English, English to Putin dictionary here. When he says we will defend our land, what he means by our land is the 18 percent of Ukraine that he just declared part of Russia and by our people. He means the Ukrainians who have taken up arms to stop him. And when he says, by all means at our disposal, all means, that's rhetoric that's gone nuclear. The U.S. is the only country in the world to have used nuclear weapons on two occasions, resulting in the destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which reminds me, they have created a precedent. Mm -hmm. Friendly reminder. So how serious is Putin? about using a nuclear weapon. Well, President Biden, he sure seems to be taking it seriously. Quote, Putin's not joking when he talks about potential use of tactical nuclear weapons or biological or chemical weapons because his military is, you might say, significantly underperforming, Biden said a few days ago. Quote, I don't think there's any such thing as the ability to easily use a tactical nuclear weapon and not end up with Armageddon, unquote. And look, if Putin talking about nukes sounds scary to us, Imagine how it sounds to the Ukrainians. Here's President Zelensky. They begin to prepare their society. That is very dangerous. I think that it's dangerous even to speak about it. But Putin is speaking about it. And it's even more troubling given three aspects of where Putin currently finds himself. Number one, his back is against a wall. Look at the territory that the Ukrainian military has gained in the past couple of weeks. See all that light blue? Those are Ukrainian forces taking their own land back, pushing back on Putin's forces. And as Putin loses territory, he's oddly gaining swagger. One source telling CNN, quote, defeat is not an option for Putin. So what are some of the worst case scenarios here? Nightmare scenario one, some experts think it could be a Russian military strike on one of the largest nuclear power plants in the world, in Ukraine, which Ukrainian officials think could result in a disaster 10 times worse than Chernobyl in 1986. Nightmare scenario two, an attack by Russia inside a NATO country. And while that might sound far-fetched, that is what's worrying Senator Marco Rubio of Florida. And Rubio probably knows a little bit about this. He's the highest ranking Republican on the Senate Intelligence Committee. 
I think the thing I worry most about is a Russian attack inside NATO territory, for example, aiming at the airport in Poland or some other distribution point. There certainly would be an attack on one. And so, therefore, certainly NATO will have to respond to it. Nightmare scenario three, a nuclear bomb dropped by Russia onto the innocent people of Ukraine, a situation that former CIA director and retired four-star General David Petraeus says would require a U.S. response. Just to give you a hypothetical, um, we would respond by leading a NATO, a collective effort, that would take out every Russian conventional force that we can see and identify on the battlefield in Ukraine and also in Crimea and every ship on the, in the Black Sea. Which sounds an awful lot like World War III. So this is where we're at right now. The U.S. and Russia on the brink of a full-on war with a bloodthirsty dictator threatening the U.S. to call his bluff on using a nuke. Now, President Biden said for the first time since the Cuban Missile Crisis, we have the threat of a nuclear weapon if, in fact, things continue down the path they're going. So let's go back to that moment. Let's go back to the time that, a, that another Democratic president made this announcement, not so dissimilar, 60 years ago this very month. On October 22, 1962, President John F. Kennedy broadcast a special message to the nation from his office in the White House. Nuclear weapons are so destructive and ballistic missiles are so swift that any substantially increased possibility of their use or any sudden change in their deployment may well be regarded as a definite threat to peace. A similar concern expressed by John F. Kennedy decades ago inside the same White House, another American president telling the public the nuclear threat from Russia and the Soviet Union was very real. Now, the threat to peace during the Cuban Missile Crisis was the Soviets' plan to move nuclear missiles to Cuba in the Caribbean. In those 13 days on the brink of mutually assured destruction, that was the culmination of a nuclear age no one wants to go back to. Fallout shelters, air raid drills, our government putting out insipid cartoons to reassure kids that ducking under their desks would save them from the nuclear holocaust. He did what we all must learn to do. You and you and you and you and cover. That's a great plan. It's exactly like a monkey with a stick of dynamite. So how did we find ourselves back here again 60 years later? Well, you can blame Mr. April and Mr. July and, of course, Mr. September. That's right, Vladimir Putin is a man who actually releases an annual calendar featuring himself as the pinup every month. He's 70. So it might be easy to take Putin as a joke. And some world leaders do on occasion. A couple of them even got caught on camera at the G7 mocking those shirtless pics. Canada's Justin Trudeau and the United Kingdom's Boris Johnson suggesting they too needed to go shirtless to prove they were tougher than Putin. Unamused, Putin responded, saying, quote, I don't know if they wanted to strip down to the waist or below the waist, but I think it would have been a disgusting sight either way. Below the waist. Okay. But, but that little snippet raises an important question, and that's our second point about where Putin finds himself. Has the West failed to take Putin seriously enough? I mean, the evidence suggests that we have. 
and that one American president after another has, has tried to appease him to avoid this very moment in which we find ourselves today, passing Neville Chamberlain's umbrella like a relay baton. In 2000, as President Bill Clinton was wrapping up his time at the White House and Putin was just stepping into office, Putin leveled the Chechen capital city of Grozny. Thousands of civilians were killed. And Clinton's attitude was this. I think that uh, the United States can, can do business with this man. What I have seen of him so far <clears throat> indicates to me that he's capable of being a very strong and effective and straightforward leader. Since then, president after president has hoped for the best and watched the worst happen. I looked the man in the eye. I found it to be very straightforward and trustworthy. Uh, we had a very good dialogue. I was able to um, get a sense of his soul. He's a man deeply committed to his country and the best interests of his country. Bush might have gotten a sense of Putin's soul. He didn't get a sense that Putin was about to seize part of neighboring Georgia. And Obama, President Obama conveyed he also wanted to work with the guy. This is my last election. Yeah. Uh, After my election, I have more flexibility. Lost in the transmission, I suppose, was that Putin had his eyes on Crimea, which he invaded and seized shortly thereafter, while also sending in fighters to the eastern part of Ukraine, the part he just declared part of Russia. This is back in 2014. Of course, the last president, I mean, he even sided with Putin over U.S. intelligence findings that Russia has intervened in the 2016 election. President Putin, uh, he just said it's not Russia. I will say this. I don't see any reason why it would be. I do. Meanwhile, Trump is now siding openly with Putin, suggesting that NATO and the United States all but forced Putin to attack Ukraine and start killing civilians. They actually taunted him. If you really look at it, our country and our so-called leadership taunted Putin and sort of, right. I would listen. I'd say, you know, they're almost forcing him to go in with what they're saying. The rhetoric was so dumb. Trump is even lauding Putin's goal of reconquering the former Soviet Union. They wanted to rebuild the Soviet Union. They had a country. You could see it was a country where there's a lot of love. A lot of love. I guess if your love language is gulags. Now, look, Putin's always been a paranoid, brutal dictator whose critics constantly find themselves in jail or curiously suddenly inclined to jump out the nearest window. Putin's ordered assassinations not only in Russia, but in Western countries. And he holds some truly deranged views of the West. In Peter Baker's book, Days of Fire, Putin and Bush meet in 2002 to discuss a tariff war. Quote, Putin asserted that the Americans deliberately sent bad poultry to Russia. I know you have separate plants for chickens for America and chickens for Russia, Putin told Bush. Bush was astonished. Vladimir, you're wrong. Putin refused to believe him. My people have told me this is true. His people told him that nonsense about the U.S. having special chicken plants so we can send Russia defective drumsticks. What do you think they're telling him about how the war in Ukraine's going today? And that brings me to my third and final point I want to make about where Putin finds himself today. What would happen 
if you took a brutal, megalomaniacal dictator and then injected in him an extra dose of crazy. I ask because a few weeks ago, French President Emmanuel Macron, one of the few world leaders who's been directly talking to Putin, he told me he does not think Putin is acting rationally. Now it's clear for everybody that the leader who decided to go to war, the leader who decided to escalate, is President Putin. And I have no rational explanation. And I would say this is a post-COVID-19 consequence. Isolation. Because he's been so isolated? I think so. And others who have spent time with Putin in the past are sounding the alarm of the Putin of the present, such as former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice. He was always calculating and cold. But... uh, This is different. He seems uh, erratic. Former Director of National Intelligence James Clapper. I personally think he's unhinged. I really worry about his um, acuity and balance right now. Former Secretary of Defense Bob Gates. He's gone off the rails. This behavior is different and, and it's very worrisome. So, a brutal dictator, arguably too appeased for too long, currently losing both his war and also perhaps his touch with reality. And so what does President Biden do? Is there a a red line that Putin cannot cross? And what happens if he does cross it? How realistic is it, do you think, that Putin would use a tactical nuclear weapon? My exclusive interview with President Joe Biden is next. The Russian military currently raining fear and devastation, not on soldiers in a distant battlefield, but in neighborhoods and cities across Ukraine. The ferocity of Russia's attacks on civilian targets underscores a stark reality. It could get worse, much worse. President Biden met virtually with G7 leaders and Ukrainian President Zelensky today. We're told that 93-minute meeting focused on reassuring Ukraine of continued international support amidst serious fears that Putin could deploy a tactical nuclear weapon. And that's exactly where I began my conversation with the President of the United States. Thank you so much for doing this, sir. Appreciate it. Happy to. So for people at home who don't know, this is the map room Uh, during World War II. This is where... It was basically the situation room for FDR. He would look at sensitive information. And now we're at a period where there's another high-stakes war in Europe. Uh, You recently said that this is the first time since the Cuban Missile Crisis that there's a legitimate possibility of someone using a nuclear weapon, which could lead to Armageddon. That's the word you used. Um, How realistic is it, do you think, that Putin would use a tactical nuclear weapon? Well, I, I don't think he will, but I think it's irresponsible for him to talk about it. The idea that a world leader of one of the largest nuclear powers in the world says he may use a tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine, the whole point I was making was it could lead to just a horrible outcome. And uh, not because anybody intends to turn it into a world war or anything, but it just once you use a nuclear weapon, the mistakes that can be made, the miscalculations, who knows what would happen. What is the red line for the United States and NATO? And have you directed the Pentagon and other agencies to game out what a response would be 
if he did use a tactical nuclear weapon or if he bombed the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant in Ukraine or anything along those lines? There's been discussions on that, but I'm not going to get into that. It would be irresponsible for me to talk about what we would or wouldn't do. Have you asked the Pentagon to, to game it out, though? I mean, just in case? The, the Pentagon didn't have to be asked. So French President Macron told me that he doesn't think that Putin is acting rationally. And he said that he thinks a lot of this is because of how isolated Putin was for two years during the pandemic. And others who have dealt with him, Condi Rice and, and Bob Gates and James Clapper, have used words like erratic and unhinged to describe Putin's behavior today. Do you think Putin is a rational actor? I think he is a rational actor who's miscalculated significantly. He, I think he thought, uh, you, you may recall, I pointed out that they were going to invade, that all oh, those 100,000 or more troops there, and no one believed that he was going to invade Ukraine. You listen to what he says. If you listen to the speech he made after when that decision was being made, he talked about uh, the whole idea of he was needed to be the leader of Russia that united all the Russian speakers. I mean, it just, I, I just think it's irrational. So if, if he's not rational and... No, he, I didn't say he's not rational. You said the speech is what's think I think the speech, is, okay. his objectives were not... I think he thought, Jake, I think he thought he's going to be welcome with open arms. That this was, this has been the, the home of Mother Russia and Kiev and, and he was going to be welcomed. And I, I think he just totally miscalculated it. So you talked about this um, a few days ago, the search for an off-ramp for him, because his back is against the wall. There are questions about how rational he's, he is. He already was a brutal dictator. What is the off-ramp? Is there any acceptable way that he can leave, um, in his mind, without seizing territory in a way that would not be acceptable to Ukraine? I don't know what's in his mind, but clearly he could leave. He could just flat leave and still probably hold his position together in Russia. The idea that he's been able to uh, convince the significant Russian America, of the, the Russian people that uh, this is uh, um, something that he thought made sense, but now he's accomplished what he wanted to do and it's time to bring Russians home. Would you be willing to meet with him at the G20? Look, I have no intention of meeting with him. But, uh, for example, if he came to me at the G20 and said, I want to talk about the release of Griner, I'd meet with him. I mean, it would depend. But I, 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 I can't imagine. Look, we've taken a position. I just did a G7 meeting this morning. The idea, nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine. So I'm not about to, nor is anyone else prepared to, negotiate with Russia about them staying in Ukraine, keeping any part of Ukraine, et cetera. So it would depend on specifically what he wanted to talk about. But uh, look, he's acted brutally. He's acted brutally. He, I think he's committed war crimes. Um, and uh, so I, 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 don't, I don't see any rationale to meet with him now. When people hear the word Armageddon, they get scared. From Used by a U.S. Yeah. president, they get scared. Do you think in any way discussing this type of thing publicly, openly, Putin's possible use of nuclear weapons, might have the opposite effect of what you want. It might make some of our wobblier European allies be even more scared of confronting Putin. Well, no, I don't think so at all. I think, look, it was a, a directed 
when I'm talking about, I'm talking to Putin. He, in fact, cannot continue with impunity to talk about the use of a tactical nuclear weapon as if that's a rational thing to do. The mistakes get made and the miscalculation could occur. No one can be sure what would happen and it could end in Armageddon. And you still are afraid of that, though, that it could? Well, no, I don't think anyone, any rational person saying the initial use of tactical nu- of a nuclear weapon, killing thousands of people, does not have the prospect of leading to something that can be way out of control. Let's turn to Saudi Arabia. Um, some of your Democratic allies on Capitol Hill are afraid that the U.S. got played when you went to Saudi Arabia and fist bumped with the crown prince because now, obviously, a few months later, Saudi-backed OPEC is slashing oil production in partnership with Russia. The chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Menendez, just called for a freeze on cooperation with Saudi Arabia, including most arms sales. Senator Durbin, the number two Democrat in the Senate, says the Saudis sided with Russia against the United States. Do you think it's time for the U.S. to rethink its relationship with Saudi Arabia? Yes. And by the way, let's get straight why I went. I didn't go to one about oil. I went about making sure that we made sure that we weren't going to walk away from the Middle East and what was going on. And by the way, today I just got off the telephone with the president of, of uh, uh, I, I got off the phone with the prime minister of Israel and the president of Lebanon. They've worked out a deal. They've been at war, declared war with one another for a long time. They've worked out a boundary relationship along the, in the, uh, in, in the eastern Mediterranean for oil. I, and they're going to make an agreement that is historic. We also got overflights for Israeli planes over Saudi Arabia. We got movement in terms of how we would deal in the Middle East with aggression from Iran. But it wasn't, you know, there were eight other, there were eight other parties there. It wasn't about, it wasn't about oil. Okay, but you but, would. But we should, we should, and I am uh, in the process when the, when the, uh, uh, the House and Senate gets back, they're going to have to, uh, there's going to be some consequences for what they've done with Russia. What kind of consequences? Menendez says suspend all arms sales. Is that something you'd consider? I'm not going to get into what I'd consider and what I have in mind, but there will be, there will be consequences. The midterm elections are four weeks from today. The economy remains top, top of mind for voters. J.P. Morgan Chase CEO said the U.S. is likely to enter a recession in the next nine months. Bank of America says the U.S. could start losing 175,000 jobs a month. Gas prices are on the rise again. Should the American people prepare for a recession? No. Look, they've been saying this now how every, every six months they say this. Every six months they look down the next six months and see what's going to happen. It hadn't happened yet. It hadn't, there, there, has, there is no, there's no guarantee that there's going to be a recession. I don't think there will be a recession. If it is, it'll be a very slight recession. That is, we'll move down slightly. We'll, look, think about what's happened. We have done more. We're in a better position than any other major country in the world, economically and politically. We, are, we still have real problems. But we, look, 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 what we've, look what we got done. We, 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 we passed so much legislation that significantly makes a, makes a point about, you know, for example, the American Rescue Plan, the, the legislation to deal with inflation, um, the, the Inflation Act. We moved along. I mean, there's so much that's been accomplished that the idea that there's uh, something, there's an automaticity to recession is just not, is just not there. They keep, they've been predicting this off and on for the last 
But you just said that a slight recession is possible. It is possible. Look, it's possible. I don't anticipate it. But I do think, look, we talk about the impact on families. The families are, they have reason to be concerned about energy prices. They have reason to be concerned about a whole range of issues. But look what we've done. We've been able to, the Inflation Reduction Act, there's more, look, I, I know I always quoted my dad, but my dad used to say, what, what, is there any breathing room for a middle-class family? And the breathing room is after all the bills are paid at the end of the month, they have anything left. And there's more than one way to bring down the cost, monthly cost for, for people who in fact are struggling to make sure they have end, the ends meet and they have enough money. And that's what we've done with the Inflation Reduction Act. Look, we've reduced drug prices. We've allowed, uh, we've, for the first time, we've been trying for years to get Medicare to be able to negotiate drug prices. We pay the highest drug prices of any nation in the world, any mm-hmm. major nation. We, uh, we're going to be in a situation where no senior is going to have to pay more than $2,000 a year for the drugs, no matter how much they cost. We've reduced the price. We're going to make sure that nobody has to pay more than $35 a month for insulin. Etc. So there's so much to be done. And the same with the, on energy. We passed the, look, what I ran on, I said we're going to deal with energy. Right. And, and the energy problem, we're going to deal with the whole notion of global warming. We passed $368 billion worth of help, which, as the same bankers talk about, is going to bring a billion, a trillion, seven hundred million dollar, billion dollars off the sidelines in investment. Look what's happened. Look, look at the investment that's going on in America right now. Yeah. So you think Democrats have something to run on? Oh, I think we do. I know we do. And here's the contrast. We know it. What's the Republican platform to run on? What are they running on? What are they for? Well, they want to put Social Security on on the chopping block every five years. And the other leader comes along and says, no, every year it should be up for grabs. Medicare, Medicaid. I mean, these aren't negotiable items in terms of whether they're going to continue them or not. They, and and the first thing they said they're going to do is get rid of the Inflation Reduction Act. And so what's that do? They're going to raise drug prices, raise medical costs again, be sure that we're going to no longer be able to have the ability to have tax credits for weatherizing your home, saving right. money. I mean, I don't know what they're for. Our reporting, CNN's reporting and The Washington Post reporting suggests the prosecutors think they could, they have enough to charge your son, Hunter, uh, for tax crimes and a false statement about a gun purchase. Um, personally and politically, um, how do you react to that? Well, first of all, I, I'm, I'm proud of my son. This is a kid who got, uh, not a kid, he's a grown man. He got uh, hooked on, uh, uh, like many families have had happen, hooked on drugs. Uh, he's overcome that. He's established a new life. He is, um, uh, I'm confident that he is what he says and does are consistent with what happens. Um, and uh, for example, he wrote a book about his problems and was straightforward about it. I'm proud of him. He came along and said, by the way, this thing about a gun, I didn't know anything about it, but turns out that when he made my a- a- application to purchase a-, a gun, what happened was he said, I guess you get asked, I don't guess, you get asked the question, are you on drugs, you use drugs? He said, no. And he wrote about saying no in right. his book. So I, I, I have great confidence in my son. I love him, and uh, he's on a straight and narrow, and he has been for a couple of years now, and I'm just so proud of him. Um, you're about to turn 80. 
next month, happy birthday, ahead of time. <laughs> Whenever anyone raises concerns about your age, you're the oldest president in the history of the United States, you always say, watch me. Voters have been watching you. Democratic voters approve of the job you're doing. Democratic voters uh, overwhelmingly like you. Um, but one poll shows that almost two-thirds of Democratic voters want a new nominee in 2024, and the top reason they gave was your age. So what's your message to Democrats who like you, who like what you've done, but are concerned about your age and the demands of the job? Well, they're concerned about whether or not I can get anything done. Look what I've gotten done. Name me a president in recent history that's gotten as much done as I have in the first two years. Not a joke. You may not like what I got done, but the vast majority of the American people do like what I got done. And so I just, it's, it's a matter of, can you do the job? And I believe I can do the job. I've been able to do the job. I've gotten more done. I got the inflation reduction. I got all these pieces of legislation passed. And I ran on that. I said this is what I was going to do. And I'm still getting it done. We've got, you know, dealing with, you know, making sure the veterans get compensated for the for you know, burn pits. the burn pits, making yeah. sure that we're in a situation where we finally have action on guns. And by the way, I'm going to get an assault weapons ban. Before this is over, I'm going to get that again. Not a joke. And watch. And so I just think there's a, you know, it's a matter of, has anybody done more in the first two years of their administration for a guy who was, they've been saying this about my age for, since I began to run. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know. We can you come work out with me in the morning. <laughs> anytime. Anytime. The, the uh, um, big question, of course, is when you're going to make an official announcement about whether or not you're going to run for 2024 for re-election. Do you think you'll make a decision before the end of the year? Well, look, uh, I'm not going to make this about my decision. I'm going to make this about this off-year election. After that's done in November, then I'm going to be in the process of deciding. Is one of the calculations that you think you're the only one who can beat Donald Trump? I believe I can beat Donald Trump again. All right, Mr. President, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. And uh, I know you're rooting for the Phillies. That's a fact. (laughs) If I weren't, I'd be sleeping alone. I married a Philly girl. Yeah. All right, thank you, sir. Thank you. We have another special one-on-one for you. My new interview with Dwayne The Rock Johnson ahead. Did the superstar enjoy playing a superhero in his big return to the big screen? What about his possible presidential ambitions? We sat down to chat. It's good to see you. Is it okay if I call you Dwayne? I'm told that you prefer Dwayne or DJ. Whatever comes out. I told your producer, daddy works too. That would be very, very weird. That would be very strange. We'll be right back. Do you know who Black Adam is? Because if you don't, you will. In just a few days' time, none other than Dwayne The Rock Johnson is going to bring this DC Comics anti-hero to life on the big screen. The movie is from Warner Brothers, which, full disclosure, is owned by CNN's parent company, Warner Brothers Discovery. And the film touches on the origin story of the DC Comics character and his transformation from a slave in the fictitious kingdom of Kondok into an all-powerful meta-human who has... Fewer obvious compunctions about killing people than, say, Wonder Woman. Here's a sneak peek. I told you, stop killing people. They look alive to me. Because I saved them. Well, that's why I waited until you were there. I got the information I needed. No one died. I did it your way. He does have a point. 
I know it got lost in all the confusion, but we still have some issues to settle here. There are only heroes, and there are villains. You think yourself a hero, but you would let these criminals go free. Heroes don't kill people. Well, I do. And joining us now, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Dwayne, thank you so much for joining us. Really exciting to have you. I'm a big fan of yours. I have to say, this cannot be the first time that you were ever asked to join a superhero universe. Um, What appealed to you about the Black Adam character? His story is so different from the traditional superhero stories that, that I've seen. Sure. Uh, Well, I have been lucky and fortunate enough to have been asked to play a few superheroes in the past. Those projects I passed on, and they went on to other actors uh, who played them, I think, brilliantly. Uh, What was also also very intriguing to me about Black Adam was that there was a challenge in that a lot of the world didn't know who Black Adam was. Black Adam is not a sequel. It wasn't an already existing IP uh, that people were familiar with. So when you look at the DC Bible, the pantheon of these DC uh, superheroes, Black Adam was sitting right there. And I always felt, even years ago, so Jake, this has been a 10-year passion project that I've been pushing and fighting for this thing. Um, and when you look at Black Adam as a character, um, <clears throat> all these characteristics, backstory, he starts off as a slave. His family's enslaved 5,000 years ago. His family's wiped away in the mythology. And he is born from rage, and he is blessed with these powers, uh, these superpowers that rival Superman. That in of itself, I mean, you know, I raised my hand. I said, you know, I'm I'm in. So it was creating an opportunity to deliver a character that had never been seen before, a pretty cool character that could be interpreted as a superhero or a supervillain or even an antihero or protector, and also continue to build out the DC universe by introducing the Justice Society of America. And um, I know you know this because we were talking about our comics and superhero movies, but a lot of the world, they don't know that the JSA that we introduced in our movie predated the Justice League. So the JSA, they were the actual first superhero group ever. There's a very interesting theme in this film about how the more traditional American quote-unquote superheroes, the Justice Society, have not helped people in other countries, other, other nationalities, other races, such as this fictitious country of Kandak. And there's also this theme about how Westerners have no right to impose their views or decisions on Kandak. There is an, an anti-imperialism, anti-colonialism theme that I've never seen before in a superhero movie. Well, thank you for pointing that out. Thematically, I feel like we try to add as many layers as possible without the film being convoluted. Uh, We wanted to make sure that we were taking care of all of our audiences, the action audience, the superhero genre audience, but also if you were to go a little bit deeper, a little bit more philosophically uh, deeper and possibly challenge, um, that's there for you too within Black Adam. And I'd like to think that the movie we made with Black Adam regardless of what race or color or culture that you're from around the world, uh, there's relatable qualities to the character of Black Adam and the philosophies that he and many uh, on that side of the world have. There's a great um, moment in our movie, which, which I really like because I like to start a little bit of trouble. 
um, but I'm sure you found this uh, just a great moment, is when when the Justice Society finally comes to this uh, place uh, called Kondok, uh, it's posed to them, well, Superman doesn't come to Kondok, and Batman has ignored Kondok. Where have you guys been all this time? And now all of a sudden you show up. We're good. We have one protector and one champion, and his name is Black Adam. It's a cool scene. I might have given a little bit of the movie away, but it's all right. This no, no, I don't, I don't think so, but it's right. I mean, like Superman's like rescuing uh, cats from trees in Metropolis, but meanwhile, there's, an entire, there's entire nations being <laughs> enslaved. I mean, it's a really, I never thought about it before. I mean, it's really interesting. And also, not to give anything away, but there are some scenes where CGI was used to make you look less muscular, which I think also is, uh, is kind of new uh, for D- the DC Universe. Well, they had to actually use all the CGI, uh, the VFX talents to make my head not look as large on screen. I've got a pretty big melon, Jake, especially on screen. <laughs> um, I will tell you this. I think, your, I think your audience will appreciate this story. You know, in, in superhero movies, as we know, they are, the, the costumes are padded with muscle padding. So when our costumers came to my house and they gave me the very first iteration of the Black Adam costume, with muscle padding. So, Jake, you and your viewers can imagine what my body with muscle padding <laughs> looked like. I mean, it was most ridiculous thing. Uh, like I belonged on a Saturday Night Live skit, but um, I finally, I had them remove the muscle padding and I put in some work. And so the final iteration of the costume is what you see in the movie. No muscle <laughs> padding, just a lot of hard work and some tequila. <laughs> there, there were a number of characters from the larger DC universe that were in this film. Uh, the Amelia Harcourt character from the Peacemaker TV show with your fellow former professional wrestler, uh, John Cena. You, there's Amanda Waller, played by Viola Davis, mm-hmm. from the Suicide Squad yeah. films. So there, he really fits in, Black Adam, into the DC universe. Should we expect more Black Adam movies and, and even Black Adam uh, cameos? I think so, Jake. That's the intention and the whole goal here and the strategy of our Seven Bucks Productions with Warner Brothers and DC as well. To me, all the characters of the J, I'm sorry, all the characters of the DC universe uh, should cross paths. And I'm, I, always, I try my best to think 10 steps ahead on what fans might like. And so we're in the process now of creatively figuring out uh, what the next best step is, should we be lucky enough to make a sequel um, and inviting some other DC characters in our movie. But also, as you know, and a lot of people out there know, it, when you look at the DC Bible, man, there are so many cool characters that have yet to be uh, introduced to the world. So I look forward to that too. So what about all the talk and and even some polling about The Rock making a run for the White House? I'll ask him when we come back after this quick break. Over the past few years, Dwayne Johnson fans have called on the professional wrestler-turned-movie star to run for president of the United States. So what does he have to say about that? Here's the rest of my conversation with The Rock. Well, I have to talk about the love you've been getting on your Black Adam tour. We're going to show some video that you shared on Instagram of a man crying after you signed his WWE belt. 
And then at one point during the tour, someone handed you their baby. You're very popular. Um, last year, there were a lot of articles about you maybe running for president, but uh, I understand you are ruling that out. Yeah, so uh, I just want to acknowledge the tour. We kicked off the tour in Mexico, and that trip was incredible. There was so much love, very powerful and quite emotional. Uh, you saw the gentleman crying. There were a lot of tears. Someone handed me an infant, um, <laughs> which I thought was a beautiful moment, which, which you got to be very careful. So I'm glad that went, out, <laughs> that went over okay. Um, but in terms of the uh, presidency, I, I got to tell, I'll, I'll tell you this, Jake, I have, it, it all is a, I think, a convergence of things that are surreal and inspiring. And what I mean by that is, as we get into the midterms, and even a couple of years ago, uh, this idea and the question continues to pop up on whether or not I would run for president, would I seriously consider it? And I have seriously considered it. You have to. When you start looking at some of these polls and these numbers creep up into the 46%, 50% of the country would vote for me, should I run? And I has been, I've been really moved by that. I mean, truly, it sat me down. Going into the midterms, I have heard now... Um, from both sides of the aisle, of uh, the most influential people in politics, asking if I would run, hoping that I would run. And again, it's so moving, man, and surreal. I, I don't know anything about politics. And uh, I will say that I absolutely, um, I'm a patriot, and I love our country, and I love everybody in it regardless of color or culture, don't care what your bank account says, what kind of car you drive. Um, but the most important job that I have is daddy and my two whys, um, why I have to take that off the table of running for president. One is six and the other one is four. And I've worked really hard, man, over the years, the past decade, to be honest with you, to try and create a life for my family and my little girls where um, we have stability and those drop-offs in the morning that I love to do to school and those pickups and nighttime routines and just being able to um, create that stability for them because I really never had that when I was a kid growing up. And I do know what it's like. I've said this before. I know what it's like. In my, when I was a professional wrestler, I was wrestling on average 250 days out of the year, a different city every night. It's what I did. I love what I did, but it's what I did to provide for my family. So, Jake, I also know what it's like uh, to not be there at a critical time uh, in my little girl's life. And that was my first daughter. Uh, so I know the I know the pains of that, of working hard because you want to protect your family, uh, but still not being able to be there. So the reason why I bring that up is because I've experienced that before in the past, I don't want to experience that now when my daughters are this little. Um, I want daddy, I want them to have their daddy uh, in their life. So it's a very long answer to say I'm um, just really grounded and humbled by the interest on both sides, but the number one job and my number one title that I love right now is, is daddy. I, I totally respect it. It's beautiful. But kids do age. That's not closing the door for, you know, in 2040, they'll be, uh, well, even before then, 2036, they'll be in college. Um, uh, 
What about them? You're not closing the door forever is what I'm asking. No, not at all. I, w- I wouldn't do that. I just, like, thank you for asking that and for clarifying that. No, right now, um, for my daughters, uh, it's important that I'm home and that stability is important for me to be there. And, um, and that's the most important thing to me. And by the way, that's a tough thing, I think, to reconcile, and uh, I'm blown away by that. The fact that I'm even having this conversation with you, the fact that I've been approached um, by the most influential um, in the world of politics, which I think you know very well, probably better than I do, um, it was really moving. But right now, the most important job that I have is to be their father and to be there. Well, God bless. The movie is very enjoyable and pretty unique for a superhero movie. It is Dwayne The Rock Johnson. The film is Black Adam. Thanks so much. It's so great to have you on. Thank you, man. I really appreciate it. We'll do it again down the road. All right. Sounds good. And Dwayne The Rock uh, Johnson's new film, Black Adam, premieres in theaters a week from Friday. That's on Friday, October 21st. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. I'll be back tomorrow night with Anna Sorokin, or is it Anna Delvey? You know, the fake heiress from Inventing Anna fame. She's out of jail. She's in house arrest. She'll show us her apartment, maybe even her ankle bracelet tomorrow night, 9 p.m. Eastern. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.